Amen. Okay, guys. Oh. Man, it's hard to believe Christmas is here, isn't it? It's like the uh, Christmas season just came out of nowhere uh, this year. It just seems like, uh, like it was summer uh, a couple weeks ago almost. And, uh, and now we're in uh, week two of Advent. Um, and normally during Advent, you know, Advent is this season of expectation. This season where we prepare ourselves uh, for the birth of Jesus. And, and there's symbolism throughout the entire church as we do that. We have the Advent wreath and the Advent... Uh, candles that we light uh, week by week. Um, we have a tradition in this church that we open up uh, in the midst of Advent. We always open up with the, the uh, Christmas story out of Luke. Every week we read another uh, section of it in chapter 1 until we get to Christmas. And, and it's there to try to get a form of expectation in us, to try to get us uh, focused to what God is doing, what God has done, to focus on uh, the purpose for the celebration that we have in Three weeks. Um, and so what we're going to do during the season of, of Advent this year is I want to take some time and I want to look at uh, the book of Isaiah, actually, for Christmas. I want to look at some of the, 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 the expectations that God uh, put in Isaiah, that God gave the prophet Isaiah about the coming of the Messiah and what that looks like. Um, and so we're going to spend some time working our way through Isaiah. Now, uh, a writer that I really appreciate from the Vineyard, a guy by the name of Derek Morphew, he um, describes Isaiah as the IMAX of the prophetic books, this huge prophetic vision uh, that is massive. And, and, and Isaiah is very focused on the kingdom of God. You know, we spent the last, uh, all through the fall, talking about what the kingdom of God was, how it works, how we can operate within it, how the gifts work within it. Um, and so for Isaiah, the kingdom is everything. And throughout the entire book of Isaiah, that thread of the kingdom is kind of floating there. And it's this massive picture that Isaiah continually uh, paints. But before we dig into it, we need to have a little bit of uh, understanding about Old Testament prophecy. So this is kind of Bible 101, guys, okay? Old Testament prophecy, uh, for many of us, it, those are the confusing books of the Bible. I mean, maybe Revelation, but, but the rest of the prophetic in the Old Testament, they can be really confusing and really odd. You read them, and it's like, what? Huh? I don't get it. And there's a reason for that. The writing in the prophets tends to be very poetic on how it's written. And, because, and the way they write it, sometimes there's no clear break between where one prophecy ends and another prophecy begins. They just seem to kind of flow together. And that can become very confusing for us. They also talk about lands and people and times that, that we don't really get anymore. We don't have a historic understanding for. And so we read them, and we don't fully understand what they mean in their time that they were spoken, and we try to somehow transcend that to our time and put a different meaning upon it, and then it gets all mushy and confusing. And we're not sure what's going on. They also tend to speak in word pictures and metaphors, and, and we just don't do word pictures and metaphors well in our culture. We like, we like the epistles, don't we? They are straight and to the point. Paul says what he means, and he means what he says, and it's right there, three-point sermon, all together nice. 
The prophets, no, they throw that out the window. They just kind of do their thing. And they paint these word pictures and these metaphors, and you're like, what? And they become really confusing for us. So as we dig into Old Testament prophecy for the next three weeks, there's a couple of things that we need to remember as we're looking at it. Um, first, the prophet is talking to a certain people about a certain situation in a certain time. Okay? So these aren't just like random musings that they got. They're speaking to a certain uh, people or people group or king at a certain time in a certain situation. And so it's really useful for us to understand what that time and situation was. Because when we understand what they were trying to do initially, it gives us greater insight to what that could possibly mean for us today, what the Lord may be speaking to us today about. Second, they don't always view the world from a strictly historic perspective. Now, here's what I mean by that. A lot of times we look at this and we think the prophet gives a word and it just has a single meaning to a single piece to a single time. That he's seeing one thing and he's speaking into that. And that's not exactly what's happening. The prophet isn't speaking into a historic situation. He's speaking into a kingdom situation. So it can be incredibly uh, more broad than how we may take it initially. Let me me give you an, an example. How many of you have ever been out to to the west, out in the mountains? Like Colorado, Arizona, right? That area always amazes me because as you're kind of out in the country, you get this broad view of everything around you, right? You see what's happening in front of you, the town, the the village, the whatever, and then you look beyond that and there's these massive mountains in the background. And you can see weather happening back there that's not necessarily happening there. And you look in the heights, and there's snow up there, but it's like 90 degrees down here. And, and you see this view of everything around you that, that it's there, but it's not necessarily there. Does that make sense? It's not what you're experiencing, but it's what you're seeing. Well, that's what these prophets are seeing. They're seeing what's happening there in the moment where they stand, but they can also see beyond that moment to what the kingdom is doing, to what God is doing in a broader context. And they're trying to describe this, and they're using the only words that they have, which tends to be metaphors and pictures, to describe what God is showing them because it's so grand and so massive that simple words fail them. So they may be talking about something right now but they're seeing something that may be happening at the end of the age, at the end of the world, and the two somehow are overlapping one another in the, in the prophet's vision, and they're trying to put that together. So there could be a meaning for now. There could also be a meaning for later. And it's all tied up in the same word, and they kind of crisscross each other and get mushy, and so they get confusing. See, we like to look at things in a very linear approach, all right? Things start here, and then this is next, and this is next, and this is next. But when you're dealing with God, you're dealing with the eternal. So God's not necessarily as linear as we want to be. God sees the entirety of history at once. And sometimes is speaking to the entirety of history in multiple situations in a single word. And that can become confusing at times. And that's something that we're going to experience today. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah. Like I said, we'll be in Isaiah uh, for the next three weeks. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 7. 
Isaiah 7. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen. Um, in verse 14, there is a verse that should sound incredibly familiar to many of you. It's a Christmas verse. It's one uh, that pops up in the Gospels in the Christmas story. It's in verse 14, and it starts like this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him, and, and I'm sorry, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him Emmanuel. Hear that one before? Know that one? That's in Matthew. Matthew pulls that one out, right? And, it, and that's his uh, explanation of, of the virgin birth. But let's dig into that. Because as we look at the context behind it, we look at the broader picture of Isaiah 7, it does not necessarily say that. So what is Matthew getting at? How does that all tie together? Let's dig into that a bit. But before we do that, whenever you're dealing with the prophetic, there's one thing you desperately need. And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit to kind of guide us as we're looking at this. Because our understanding will fail us, but his won't. So let's take a moment... And let's just pray and invite the presence of the Lord here, invite the Holy Spirit in as we begin to look at the text. Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence here. We welcome you here. Lord, we just ask, let your word speak to us this morning. Come and meet us here this morning in your word. Lord, remove any distractions that we may have, but allow us to hear clearly from you. And Lord, let your word be transformative in our lives. Lord, we just don't want learning. We want transformation. So Holy Spirit, come. Be with us today. We welcome you, Lord Jesus. We just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So whenever you're in the prophetic, the first thing you need to do is understand what's going on. What's the history behind this word? We're in Jerusalem right now. It's the 8th century B.C. Jerusalem, Israel, was once this great and powerful nation under Kings David and Solomon. Today, it is a shell of what it once was. It is diminished to an insignificant handful of people clinging on to their former glory. Uh, what, what is left is focused primarily in Jerusalem, the residence of the king, the location of God's temple, most of the Jews have mute, uh, uh, left more than 150 years earlier. The kingdom split in two. Now they're part of the larger, more prosperous, more powerful northern kingdom of Israel. And we're here focusing on the southern kingdom of Judea. The man in charge in Jerusalem uh, was a king by the name of um, Ahaz. My wife is looking at me. She's better at Hebrew than I am. His elderly father, Jotham, is still living at this time, okay? Uh, and, and still is technically is king in name, but, but Ahaz has all the power. He's, he's running the show. He's taken over. And, and what we know from Scripture, what we know from Chronicles, what we know from Kings, is he is an ungodly king. He's, he's probably the worst king uh, Judah has ever had. So, um, so much so that he offered his own children as human sacrifices, so much so that he built a pagan altar in the middle of the temple. He desecrated the temple. Now, the nations surrounding Judah that are most concerning for them are just two. It's, it's Israel and a nation called um, Aram, which is modern-day Syria 
today. In the broader picture, there's another nation that's causing trouble, and that's Assyria. Assyria is beginning to gain in strength. Uh, it's beginning to expand, and it's on the doorstep of Israel and Aram. Now, Judah's kind of protected from them because they've got these two big countries in the way, and they, and they kind of feel secure. Israel and Aram were never friends. They're usually rivals with one another, but because of Assyria in the background, they're now concerned, and they've formed an alliance. And they came to Judah, and they came to the, the, the Judean king, and they said, come into an alliance with us, and he said no. And so Israel and Aram now want to invade Is, uh, Judah to, to kick the king out, put their own ruler in charge so that they can create this alliance to fight against Assyria. The invasion is unsuccessful. Judah manages to hold off these two larger powers. But the future for them looks incredibly bleak. And, and so they're scared. They're nervous. Surely they can't hold off against these two larger kingdoms forever. And the mood in Judah is not optimistic. The people are scared. And that's where we find ourselves in Isaiah 7, verse 1. And it starts like this. When Azza, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and Pekah, son of Remlah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem. But they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. Ephraim is the other name for the northern kingdom of Israel. So the hearts of Arzion and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to your son, go out, you and your son, Shir Jasbah, and meet Azah at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the launderer's field. Say to him, Be careful, be calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering shrubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, and, of, and the son of Remelia, Aram and Ephraim and Remelia's sons have plotted your ruin, saying, let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabal king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the heart the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will, will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is only Ramallah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God's message to Asa and his people of Judea was that he had not abandoned them. His covenant promise of protection was still in effect. They had nothing to fear from the military threat that they faced. Yes, Israel and Aram, they're major powers, they're a major threat, but from God's point of view, they're nothing. They're nothing. God's promise is that within 65 years, those two countries would be destroyed. Verse 9, stand firm, trust God. If you do not, you will not stand at all. And you would assume that the king of Judah, hearing that message, would turn to God. You would assume that when they defeated those powers, they, they would have this sense of confidence and they would turn to God. But he does something else. 
Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Azza. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights. But Azza said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. I will not put God to the test. We hear that and we kind of think there's, that's a good response, right? We shouldn't test God. We should, there's piety there. But that's not the case in here. See, his mind's already been made up. He's going to put his trust, his nation's fate, in Assyria, not in God. You know, although Isaiah is, a, is, a, is an unrighteous king, he pleads piety to avoid God's instruction. He doesn't want to do what God's plans are. He's made his own plans. And he doesn't want evidence that somehow his drastic decision to align with Assyria could possibly be wrong. He doesn't want a sign uh, that Isaiah's going to uh, produce that could somehow be an embarrassment for him. You know, there's a good shot he's already reached out to Assyria and said, hey, can you help us against these two countries that you want to invade anyways? He never considered, he never considered trusting God. And to now have this old prophet, to have Isaiah show up and say that God wants to deliver you, and he's going to give you a miraculous sign proving that God will deliver you. Well, that's unwelcomed. That's not what his plans were. He had different plans for this situation, and he really didn't want God involved in that. Now, we hear that, and that sounds pretty harsh, but think about our own lives. How many times have we made plans in our own lives, and we've said, you know what? I've already decided this path. I really don't need God's intervention right now. I want to follow God, but if he can just, you know, let me do this thing here. I've got it figured out. Now, in response to all this, Isaiah issues a stinging rebuke, and this should sound familiar. Then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try patience of humans? Will you also... Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we will call him, and, and we'll call him Emmanuel. There's something interesting. We're going to pause there for a second. There's something interesting. God doesn't say, uh, the Lord's going to or Isaiah doesn't say the Lord's going to give you a sign. He says, I'm going to give the entire nation a sign. Entire nation is signed. Isaiah is announcing that God is about to do something big. But what is this sign? Too often we stop here at verse 14. We read it and we assume that you know, he's talking about the Messiah. So this sign is something that's going to happen like 700 years later. You know, Just put it in your back pocket. We're done with it. Forget about it. But that's not the case. If we go a little deeper, we see that the sign that God wants to give them is about to happen at that moment. Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. 
Isaiah's announcement here of the promised sign includes not only the birth of a child, but also his name, Emmanuel. The diet that he's going to eat, right? Curds and honey. So it'll be a simple, simple family. The age which he learns the difference from right and wrong. And in the midst of that, the destruction of Aram and Israel by the coming king of Assyria. At first glance, this doesn't appear to be a reference to the birth of Jesus as we read it. The sign only makes sense if it meant something to Asa. And, and, and what it means is that within the next 65 years, Israel's going to fall. In the next 65 years, Israel does fall to Assyria. So who's the virgin in this? Who's the boy? First, consider the significance of the name, Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. God is with us. And what's interesting, we have a picture of that in Isaiah, of a boy born in the next chapter. Remember the context. Judah's failing, uh, facing what appears to be certain destruction, a day of despair, of hopelessness. Yet Isaiah proclaims a message of deliverance. And this boy will be, caught, will be born. He's saying within 65 years it will happen. 65 years is a lifetime. But this boy is born whose name will be Emmanuel. And by his birth they'll be able to see that within that time period, within 65 years, God will deliver them. God will save them. Boys in chapter 8, verse 1, the Lord said to me, take a large scroll and write on it with ordinary pen, Maha Shalah Hashbaz. So he called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebekiah as reliable witnesses. Then I made love to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, name him Mariah Shal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to say my father and mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. Both names are interesting here. His mother calls him Emmanuel. God is with them. His father calls him Masha Hazbaz, the name given by his father, meaning quick to plunder, swift to spoil. The second name is the picture of what Assyria is about to do to Israel. The first name is the name of God's promise to Judah. God is with them. That's what happens. Assyria invades, destroys, takes all of Israel and Aram captive and marches them away. But Joe, what about the word virgin? Well, the Hebrew word here is, and Cindy will laugh at me, Alma. Did I even get that right? Wow. Every other time this word is in the Old Testament, it's never translated as virgin. It's translated as young woman maiden. When they translated this uh, to Greek, that's where virgin pops in for the first time. Now, it could be a virgin. And it's possible that when the word was given, she actually was a virgin. And then when Isaiah married her, she wasn't a virgin anymore. And we read that and we go, oh, great, Joe. Now you just completely disprove the entire Bible. Jesus can't exist. Everything is wrong. Did Matthew mess this thing up? Did he mess this up on us? No. Remember what we said about the teaching of the prophetic. When we look at an event, it sometimes talks about a greater event that happens beyond it. 
So the initial event, this word, this is for those people at that time that they will be delivered. They will be delivered. That God is with them. He will deliver them. And Matthew sees that and he sees a parallel. He sees a parallel and realizes that there's a larger meaning to this than originally considered. After recording the genealogy of Jesus in the first 17 chapters of Matthew, Matthew turns to the circumstances of Jesus' birth. Right? We know this one. We, we see it right down here. Starting in verse 18, Mary's discovered pregnant. Right? We kind of heard about it this morning when we read out of Luke 1. Matthew tells us that Joseph contemplates how to divorce her quietly, right? She's pregnant. We're not married. Something's not right here. And then an angel appears with a message for him in verse 20. And it says this, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Matthew quotes this prophecy from Isaiah and applies it to the birth of Jesus. Now, there's more than just an application here, okay? He doesn't say that, yeah, oh, he kind of meant this too. He says, no, this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The initial beginning of that prophecy was the deliverance of Judah. The fulfillment of that prophecy is the deliverance of the world. Jesus is a greater Emmanuel than the Emmanuel from the 8th century B.C. We have moved from Isaiah's son to Isaiah's savior. In Isaiah, Emmanuel is just a sign to the people that they had not been forsaken. God is with them. God will protect them. But in Matthew, we have more than a sign. Here we have God himself personally, boldly present with his people. It ties into the picture that John says, the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world, the world became flesh and lived amongst us. Here's the thing. Our need is no less than it was in the 8th century B.C. We're not afraid of a foreign enemy invading us. Instead, we're dying to sin. And so the promise that Matthew was bringing forth is the same promise that Isaiah brought forth. That God is with us. That He will deliver us. That He will fulfill His promises to us through His Son. Through his son. Now, that's a lot of work to get around one verse. And I get that. I can tell you, out of the three messages we're going to do, this is the one that keeps me up at night. This was the hardest of the bunch. And as I was studying this week and I was praying this week, I want to wrap up with this thought. The Lord kept bringing me back to the same place. You know, it's good to understand the Word. It's good to have a Bible school knowledge of the Word. 
but sometimes the word needs to strike a little close to home. And I keep having this picture in my mind of Aza, or Aza, sorry, Ahaz, sorry. He had a plan. He had a logical plan that made total sense. He had a plan. And for his day, it was probably a good plan. He wouldn't have to align with his enemies. Enemies, He could keep his kingdom, maybe be on the good side of Assyria. He had a plan. He had a really good plan. But God had a different plan. God looked at him and said, you know what? You don't have to align with anybody. You can align with me. And everything that you're hoping from Assyria, I'll give you. I'll deliver you. I'll protect you. I'll even forgive all the junk in the past. Ask me for a sign. You don't trust me now? Ask me for a sign. I'll give it to you. Whatever you want. And he said no. He said no. We're coming up to Christmas right now, and that same picture is before us. The Lord has promised us on Christmas we'll celebrate together the birth of the Christ, the birth of Jesus, the birth of Emmanuel. God is with us. But there's so many times that we live a way where we don't actually live like God is with us. We live a way where we're with us. Our intellect, our logic, our ability, that's what will deliver us. Not necessarily God. And so I believe as we're coming into this Advent season, the Lord is speaking to us. As a church, he's speaking to us individually as well. Ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign. Because I am with you right now. And even the stuff in the past that you've done, I'm willing to overlook that because my promise to you is greater than anything you've done to mess it up. Ask me for a sign. See, our hope, our hope, is in the birth of this child. Our hope is in Jesus. He is the the center of everything that we do. Our hope can never be in anything else because nothing else in this world will deliver us. Politicians won't deliver us. Wisdom won't deliver us. Lord knows the internet won't deliver us. Nothing else will deliver us except Jesus. And so the Lord is coming to us this Christmas season and He's saying, ask me for a sign. Because I will deliver you. The stuff that's coming around you, they will not happen. The trials, the tribulations that you're dealing with, I can overcome all those things. The difficulties, the illnesses, the struggles, the shortcomings. Ask me for a sign. I can take care of that in an instant. It just requires us to put our strength aside, our wisdom, our knowledge aside, and embrace God's instead. Embrace Jesus's instead. Embrace the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life instead. And so, as we come to the end today, and as we continue this journey forward towards Christmas, there's just a simple question. Do we act 
like Jesus is actually Emmanuel? Do we live a life in such a way where we actually believe that? Or do we act like Ahaz? We've got this figured out. We're good. We're good. We're good. That's the challenge for us to figure out as we move towards Christmas. Let's stand and pray. Holy Spirit, we just invite your presence here this morning. Lord Jesus, we invite you. Lord, as you're taking us on this Advent journey, as we're moving closer to you every week, Father, just let your presence be with us right now. Lord, our desire, our desire is to follow and trust you. Our desire is to lean upon you and not our own understandings, not our own wisdom, not our own strength, but to lean on your strength. So Lord, we cry out to you. We cry out to you. Let your presence come into our life. Let your, your, your Holy Spirit come into your, to our lives. Let your kingdom come into your life. Lord, let us experience Emmanuel, God with us in every aspect of our life. We thank you for Jesus. We're going to do a final song? No? As we wrap up, I just sense the Lord uh, wants to do some ministry today. And for some of us, uh, the struggle has been with trust. Do we really trust God? Do we really trust His promises? Do we really trust the words that He's spoken into our lives? Do we really believe that He will deliver us? And for some of us, we need to do business with Him today. The Lord wants to meet you here today. He wants to minister to you. For some of us, this might be the first time, the first time that we're saying, Lord, I want to trust you. I want to experience you. For some of us, we need to just recommit. So if that's where you are today, I just I want to invite you to come up as we wrap up, and, and we want to pray for you. The presence of the Lord is here today. He wants to meet with you today. So I want to invite you to come. For others of you, you're dealing with situations that just seem overwhelming in life. And, and I'm just amazed right now at how many people are at that place where it just seems overwhelming. The past two years have been exhausting. You're at your wit's end, and, and you're just overwhelmed. And I think the Lord wants to come today and bring peace. We sing that. Lord, breathe your peace. Breathe your strength on us. Bring your life breathe your life on us. And so that kind of ties into that as well today. So as we wrap up, I want to invite you, if you need prayer for any of that, feel free to come up. We want to pray for you. That Emmanuel meets you. 
presence of the Lord meet you. That God's strength, that God's peace, His grace and His mercy So Holy Spirit, let your presence come upon this place. Come and meet us here today. We welcome you, Lord. If you need prayer, come up. Otherwise, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness. May he protect you in the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders that he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Feel free to come up and get prayer. Otherwise, have a wonderful week. Be blessed.